0: Hello everybody, this is VOLTS for April 13th, 2022. VOLTS podcast, Paulina Jaramillo on the IPCC's new Climate Solutions Report. I'm your host, David Roberts. Anyone who's followed climate change for a while has become accustomed to the cycle of reports from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. The dire warnings the brief flurry of press coverage, and the rapid return to normal. It's easy for them to blur together. But the latest IPCC release is worth a closer look. It's not about the science or the impacts, but the solutions, how to fix the problem. Technically, it is the third part of the sixth comprehensive assessment report, which is being rolled out in phases. Mitigation of climate change is a comprehensive review of the economic sectors that emit greenhouse gases, the strategies and technologies that can reduce emissions, and the state of play in climate policy around the world. The overall message is quite familiar. It's still possible to hit the target of keeping global warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius, but the window is getting extremely small and it would require immediate coordinated global action. Even limiting temperature to 2C requires massive action. But at the same time, the tools and technologies for tackling the problem have never been cheaper or more accessible. Our capacity to solve the problem is rising alongside its severity. To dig into the report and its significance, I chatted with Paulina Jaramillo, a professor of engineering and public policy at Carnegie Mellon University co-director of its Green Design Institute and one of the co-authors of the Working Group 3 report. We talked about how the report fits in with the IPCC's other work, the kind of research it draws on, its major conclusions, and the usefulness of these kind of reports going forward. All right, uh, with no further ado, Paulina Jaramillo. Welcome to Volts. Thanks for coming.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So I thought the way to start would be, um, I know a lot of people who are not super tuned in to the energy and climate world will be noticing out of the corner of their eye every few years, these IPCC reports come out and there's a brief bit of media and then it all kind of fades. And then a few years later, there's another one. So maybe for people who have trouble kind of figuring out what all these reports are, just sort of set the scene a little bit for this Working Group 3 report, sort of how it fits into the larger IPCC thing.
1: So the IPCC, it's the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change. And they're a part of the UN, a UN-sponsored organization that works on providing information on climate change to decision-makers. And every few years, like you noted, they publish what we call the assessment reports. We're in the cycle of the sixth assessment report, so the sixth time the IPCC puts together this large report assessing the state of knowledge on climate change. Basically, there are three reports that come through um, based on working groups. So working group one is in charge of reporting or performing an assessment on the physical science of climate change. So what do we know about how climate change happens? What is happening to the physical system as a result of climate change? So we're on the sixth cycle. The report from working group one for the sixth assessment report came out last August. Um, Working Group 2 focuses on what are the impacts of climate change on natural and human systems and what adaptation strategies could be available to mitigate these impacts. So the report of Working Group 2 for the sixth assessment report came out in February of this year. And then Working Group 3 focuses on Mitigation. What can we do to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions that are driving climate change? And that's the report that came out this week.
0: Right. So there's periodic giant assessments from the IPCC. We're on number six. And in each of those giant assessments, there are three sub-reports. One about the hard science, which um, we saw a few months ago. One about impacts and adaptation, which we saw uh, a few months ago. And then working group three is mitigation, is solving the problem. (laughs) And that's the one that just came out. So I have a lot of questions about that because it seems to me that, you know, one of the complaints about the IPCC that one often hears, and this is true about the hard science part too, is by the time... You know, the IPCC has to cut off eligibility for research at a certain point so that it can gather it all and assess it. And then by the time the IPCC report comes out, the science that it is summarizing is often three, four, five years old, which is a problem on the hard science part, but it seems to me an even bigger problem on the mitigation side, because just intuitively, when I think about the sort of scientific research around mitigation, it just seems to me like Things are changing so quickly in terms of our ability to do things and the cost of different technologies and on and on. So how does Working Group 3 deal with that? Sort of how old, I guess, you know, I'd, I'd start there. Sort of like, when was the cutoff date for this research? How old is the mitigation research that's being sort of summarized here?
1: Yeah, so the cutoff date for Working Group 3 was October 21 of last year.
0: Oh, that's not that long ago.
1: So it's not that long. And I think the cutoff date for all of the working groups is a couple months before the report is due for submission. It's definitely not years. Hmm. So that might be a misconception that is out there.
0: Yeah, I thought that uh, you know because they have to ha- hash it over and do all the you know hashing through of common language and stuff like that, and and if you just keep letting research in, new research in, right up until the end, it seems like it would confuse the process.
1: Yeah, so it's not up to the end because there was a lot of stuff that happened since November of last year. Uh, That's <laughs> where yes. a lot of the editing and the Sending it out for comments to uh, the government that happened after November. So, the last couple of months are intense in trying to assess that literature. Um, and the other thing I should mention is the deadline is for papers being published. Right. Uh, we could consider those papers in our literature review while they were in the review process, in the peer review process. Mm. So we could have been those papers. We might have already have access to them. Um, they have just not been published yet. They had to be, and so what we needed was confirmation that the papers were published by October of 2021. So that also gave us some time to make sure that we considered those papers that were still in the peer review process.
0: Right, right. And just in terms of um, you know the kind of the kind of research we're talking about here, sort of, I think people have an intuitive idea of what the research on the hard science involves, but it just seems um, that when it comes to mitigation, the human factor is involved. (laughs) So it's much more uh, complicated, I guess, and a little bit more fuzzy. So tell us a little bit about just sort of what kind of research gets pulled into this project? Like what qualifies as, as research? Is it social science, political science, behavioral science, all the above? Um, so there
1: are 17 chapters that cover like the large integrated assessment models, they cover work that is more specific to sectors in this cycle. There's a chapter specifically on demand side. Mm, That's new. That's new. And then later, the later chapters involve like political issues like financing. So I'm not involved with the financing. I was not involved with the financing chapter, for example, because that's not my area of expertise. I was involved with the transportation sector. And that was really a lot of papers looking at the technology. So analyzing the technologies, analyzing modeling, how those technologies can be integrated into the system the research on how much they will cost. Um, So it's system level for the transport sector. And I think for a lot of the sectors, it's really the research on what are these technologies available. Um, There's a lot of work in the research world about how much they might cost into the future and uh, how they will perform. So that's the literature for the sectoral models. On the demand chapter, there were a lot of uh, social scientists involved because there is a lot of research on how humans behave and make decisions about energy and transport. And so the authors of that chapter focused a lot on that literature. And a lot of that comes from human geography, social behavioral science. I'm not as much of an expert on that. And there is also that chapter on financing, which I think is really interesting, And I mean, there's the social scientists, political science, those scientists that work on what are policy instruments that have work, what are financing mechanisms that could be available. And so there's research on those issues as well. And so those are the type of literature that the authors of those chapters looked into.
0: Is it fair to say that the scientific literature on these kinds of things, on policies and future costs, is just kind of less firm than the physical science research? I mean, do you end up writing, um, every time there's a conclusion in the report, there's a little parentheses that says high, medium, or low confidence. Is there more medium and low confidence uh, results in this chapter than in the, the hard science chapters?
1: So, I haven't actually done a comparison of those things. But when you look at the body of literature, and if you look at the transport chapter, for example, we covered what the costs of alternative fuels could be. And you will see that there's, it's really like a, because the cost, for example, of an electric vehicle compared to the cost of a gasoline vehicle vary a lot throughout the world depending on what is the cost of buying the vehicle, but also what are the electricity costs and what's the cost of diesel uh, or gasoline, which we know changes a lot. So it was more of an analysis of this is the realm of possibilities and this would be like how the costs compare. And you can look for robustness, right? And you can see, okay, in all of these set of possibilities, electric vehicles are increasingly cheaper than internal combustion engines, not everywhere, but you look at the body of literature and we find electric vehicles, wind and solar, the costs have really dropped down so much that there is kind of consensus and there's some variability by region and, and, but there is robustness in the findings that wind and solar are increasingly competitive with fossil fuels, electric vehicles are increasingly competitive with conventional vehicles and so for some things, for example, like fuels for aviation, the costs of those things are really low confidence. And they actually, we actually, my chapter doesn't have that much information about the costs of those fuels because a lot of those technologies are early in their development stages. So there's not much we can say about costs.
0: So there are themes, themes that emerge that you're, that you're quite confident in. Right. And one one other thing about the nature of the research, and I'm not totally sure how to ask this, but you know, like it, it, as long as I've <laughs> been covering this, um, there's been a million technical policy solutions on the table that could solve this. But the problem is, you, you know, <laughs> you're probably familiar with this phrase. You know, you, you end up with climate people saying, "We have all the solutions we need. All we need now is political will." you know, over time, I've come to see that as not like a a footnote. Like, that's the main thing. (laughs) The political will is the main thing. And so I'm wondering, is there research on not just sort of like what policies would have what effects if they were implemented, but how can we move Politics. You know what I mean? How can we get policies across the finish line? It seems like that's the main thing we don't know and need help with. And I just, I don't know if, like, you know, in the business of scientific research, there's much firm to say about that. But was there research in that direction, sort of not just technical policies, but political economy?
1: So, first of all, the IPCC is very careful to not be prescriptive, right? Um, very careful not to say this is what should happen. It's really about presenting the possibilities. Again, I am not as familiar with the literature. I think there is probably a a literature on on political economy, and I think there are some issues covered in those chapters. But it is not the role of the assessment uh, of the IPCC to say these are the things that politicians should do. And I agree with you that that is a gap. I don't know if I would if I will be involved with the IPCC again. But I think something that would make me more excited about being involved in the IPCC process again is if we were looking at what are the barriers of implementing these solutions in the real world in places around the world.
0: Right. Yes.
1: And I that has not been explicitly covered in the reports. And I think that's just because of the way the IPCC is structured, which I don't fully understand. It's above my pay grade. <laughs> but I, I agree with you, because the IPCC also publishes special reports mm. between the different assessments, like maybe a, a special report on barriers. And I, I think the barriers are mostly barriers associated with governance and social systems. Yeah. And so why are these things not happening and what what are the available options for making them happen?
0: Yeah, I I, I go back and forth because we have this, you know, at, at this point, six IPCC reports in, we've got this giant mountain of evidence that the problem is bad and getting worse scientifically, you know, in the terms of the hard science. We've got this mountain of policies that we could implement to solve it, you know, this sort of mountain of possible solutions and the the latter are not being applied to the former. And it's that disconnect that is the main thing now, like further evidence that it's bad and further evidence that we have the solutions. You know, I just wonder how much how much more evidence we can pile on those mountains before we start thinking about how to connect them.
1: And I think that is a common frustration of scientists that work on climate, (laughs) I think the challenge there is that it is very political. It is very different in different countries around the world. Mm -hmm. So ultimately it requires political will. I often, friends and family ask me like, what can I do (laughs) like to help? And there are personal decisions people can make, but the climate problem requires systemic solutions. And so I would argue that the most important things people can do is engage in the political process and mobilize so that action is taken. And the report actually talks about the role. It isn't just, let's say, the U.S. system. It isn't just at the federal level. In fact, in the absence of federal activity on climate, a lot of what is happening in terms of climate mitigation is happening at the local and even state levels.
0: Right. And there's a, there's a whole part of the, of the report on that, right? And that's new as well, is it?
1: It's been a while since ARF5. And I have to be honest, I've always focused more on the technical parts. But I do think there's a lot more, About that in this report, because there's been a lot of action on local levels in recent years.
0: Yeah, I sort of go back and forth on whether I'd want to see some sort of comprehensive assessment of that. Because, you know, on one hand, that's what we really need is to figure out how to make the things we know that need to happen happen. But on the other hand, I worry that if I saw the results, it would just reveal that no one knows how to make things happen. And if they knew, they would be doing it.
1: I mean, if we talk about uncertainty on Mitigation, which you mentioned, it may be higher than in, in some of the other, well, although the uncertainty on impacts is pretty significant too. But mm. when we're talking about political processes, we're talking about a human system with a yes. lot of players.
0: That's low, low certainty across yeah. the board there.
1: And it can change every four years at the federal level, right? <sighs>
0: With that out of the way, let's take a step back and sort of discuss sort of the big picture findings. There's sort of two trajectories we can talk about. One is, where are we headed based on current policies that are in place? And then second, where are we headed based on the pledges, the NDCs, the nationally determined contributions that each country has offered up? in paris of course we know that these you know one of the things i think everybody knows about the ndcs at this point is that lots of countries are not doing (laughs) what they would need to do to hit their professed targets but nonetheless let's talk about where would we end up if we just stayed with current policy and then where would we end up if everybody did what they say they're going to do
1: with current policies emissions would continue to increase And that's with, like, the current policies extended beyond 2030. A lot of the policies are to 2030. Under the current path, we're in a path to, I think, like, around 3.5 degrees.
0: Right. And let me me pause there because this is uh, something that I think a lot of people get confused about, uh, sort of the general public. Um, You know, on the one hand, there's this story that the action we've taken so far has helped kind of shrink the range of possible outcomes, we have acted enough now to make your sort of like five degrees, six degrees scenarios.
1: Highly unlikely.
0: Highly unlikely. So like the super species, you know, <laughs> ending type of mega apocalypse is at this point extremely unlikely. That said, 3.5 degrees would still be super bad. So how do you sort of explain that difference to people if you're, you know, to sort of civilians when you're trying to explain the difference in possible outcomes here?
1: Even 2.5 and 3.5 will be catastrophic. Maybe not everywhere in the world because there's adaptation. I mean, that, and that's what I guess the Working Group 2 report says, right? We need to limit below 2 Celsius and really ideally below 1.5 to avoid really catastrophic. So, after a certain level of bad, everything is just bad.
0: Right? <laughs> right.
1: Yes, we have dec- we have gone from possibly getting to 5 to going to 2.5 or 3.5. That's still bad.
0: Right yeah it's 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 difficult to sort of you know have this sort of ranked catastrophes in your head there's such a wide range from 3 degrees up to 6 degrees of catastrophe it's uh it's difficult to sort of keep them straight but you know as the as the previous IPCC report was all about even the difference between 1.5 and 2 is really super bad for yeah. some especially for certain parts of the world
1: let me give you an example also of how I've thought about it so I'm originally from Medellín Colombia Mhm and the last time I was there a while ago, I thought I remember saying, Oh my God, the traffic has gotten so bad here. And some of my friends were like, It's worse in Bogota. And I was like, Yeah, that doesn't mean this isn't bad.
0: <laughs> right.
1: Right. Just because it's worse somewhere else doesn't mean it's good here. Right. Um, and I think this is true of these. Like this is the message. Just because it's better than it was like the projections for no action are slightly better than they were years ago, they're still bad.
0: Right. So current policies lead us to somewhere between 2.5 and 3.5, which, as we were saying, is super bad. Um, What about if countries do what they have pledged to do in Paris? How big of a difference does that make?
1: It still doesn't lead, it doesn't help us get to the 1.5 or two de- or even the two degree. Not even two. Not even two. Uh-uh. with the current conditions. The sentence specifically, and I, I'm, I'm going to read this to you and then we can talk about what it means. but with unconditional unconditional elements in the uh, nationally determined contributions, emissions would be 53 with a range of 50 to 57 or 50 with a range of 47 to 55 gigatons of CO2 equivalent, which leaves a median estimate of emissions gaps of 14 to 23 gigatons of CO2 equivalents to limit warming two degrees and 25 to 34 gigatons to limit warming to 1.5. So even with these NDCs, the gap is big. So the NDCs really are not enough.
0: Right. The indices that, to be clear, countries are not even meeting yet.
1: Yeah. And so I guess this is a better line from the report. The estimates are that under-projected global emissions from aggregated, nationally determined contributions place limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees beyond reach and make it harder after 2030 to limit warming to 2 degrees. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, I mean, I think that's very striking, right? Yes. I mean, the fact that like the statement is with the current NDCs will be like 1.5 is beyond reach.
0: Well, let's talk about that for a minute because one of the, you know, the, I, I wrote a post a few years ago for Vox. I don't know if it was based on an IPCC report or some other report, but basically saying, yes, it is still technically possible to hit 1.5. Like you can stick a bunch of policies into a model and get the model to output 1.5 degrees. But at this point, it would involve basically a sharp heel turn by every institution in every country (laughs) in the world simultaneously, which has no historical precedent. So, do you think it's fair when people say that 1.5 is effectively pragmatically out of reach at this point? Do you accept that conclusion? And if you do or don't, like what does that mean to you? Should we I mean what was it, what would it mean to decide that 1.5 is is out of reach?
1: So I actually had a colleague write to me and say after the report came out say, I don't know why we're still talking about 1.5. That's just not going to happen. Right. Uh, not because we don't have the tools to, like the report clearly says, we have the tools to make this happen if we act now. Right. I mean, I kind of get that a little, sometimes I get that feeling of this isn't going to happen, <laughs> but I have two kids and I'm dedicating my life to figuring out how to make it happen. So a part of me just has to maintain a level of optimism. Right. And even if 1.5 doesn't happen, there is a little bit of a better chance to be able to get to two degrees.
0: Can you imagine us doing two degrees? Like at this point, I just I just have trouble even envisioning 1.5, just the scale of of disruption that would be required. Can you envision us coming in under two? Like, does that seem a little bit more achievable to you?
1: Yeah, I mean, it still requires action and political will pretty quickly, right but it i mean i think it's a little bit more i don't know if likely is the right word because i can <laughs> i can't i can't put probabilities of these things happening but maybe a little more tenable i'm not sure right. what the word right. but i mean sometimes you think we're not doing we're not going to do anything <laughs> <laughs> and that those days are very depressing and you get, you say what what are we doing here the only way i can function is by keeping some optimism Um, That we can do at least something about two degrees.
0: Well, in the name of optimism, you know, the mitigation, the general area of mitigation is full of longstanding sort of disputes and arguments. Everybody has their own favored solution. Everybody has their own favored technologies. But as you said, the review of the literature sort of found some themes, some, some themes in which you have high confidence, a few sort of mitigation options that kind of pop out of every model that there's kind of no way around. So let's just talk about a sort of few of those. Like, what are a few of the big solutions that we are very confident are going to have to play a big role?
1: The power system is probably where we have the most developed options. Let's start with the report had a section on demand side mitigation options. Right. It's the first time. And there is no doubt that we need to address demand and that demand mitigation options can reduce demand for services in developed countries. Um, Developing countries are a different ballgame, I guess.
0: Yeah, I'm curious how the demand chapter addressed emerging countries, because on the one hand, you want to be very careful about like, limiting demand when so many people are in poverty and have so little. But on the other hand, there are ways of shaping demand, even if as, it, as it grows, to make it less than it might otherwise be, right?
1: Right. And I think that's the key message that sometimes gets lost. There is a figure in the Summary for Policymakers where it looks at what are the potential reductions in emissions that could happen through demand-side mitigation. And I think a very important thing that we have to understand about that figure is that these are not reductions compared to today.
0: Right, right. These
1: are reductions compared to what demand could be or the emissions could be in 2050 if we don't do anything.
0: Right, right.
1: And so in the transport chapter, we specifically say... Demand side mitigation strategies can help reduce demand for transportation services in developed countries and limit the growth of demand in developing countries which suggests it's not about saying that people in developing countries that demand won't grow because let's say i mean there's going to be like 3.5 more billion more people in developing countries by 2050 yeah
0: Cities too, urban dwellers.
1: Right. And so demand, just because of population growth, demand is going to grow. What these strategies can do is limit the growth associated with those changes. And so, and that that is important, right? Because it, it does help it reduces the need for technologies right mm-hmm. if we didn't have those demand side mitigation strategies then we would ev- we would even need we would need even more technologies and expand into technologies that maybe are less well developed right so i i think that's an important message on the demand side that i want to clarify there's definitely opportunities for reducing demand from current levels in developed countries and that means like Investments in like so urban form, for example, having more dense, mixed use uh, cities where people live close to where they work and where they shop.
0: Um, This is my favorite. That's my favorite.
1: That can reduce distances of travel. It can also make biking and walking much more viable, right? If you live 30 miles from your work, you're not going to bike or walk to walk. But if you leave two miles from work, then biking and walking or even, I mean, I think there's people that can even a little bit further than that. Public transport, right? If you have more public transport, that helps reduce emissions. And that's a demand side strategy.
0: Let me pause on this point because this is a longstanding argument in the climate world about the relative possible contributions in transportation. This is your, this is your wheelhouse. In transportation, the relative contributions of electrifying vehicles versus urban form. Like, can we get some sense of the scale there? Like, are those equally potent? Is electrification going to be a much bigger part? I'm sort of, uh, I, I wonder what the relative roles of those two are.
1: We actually, in the transport sector, do not directly quantify. We have a discussion about them, uh, but that is a lot of uncertainty. And I think that's actually very different in different parts of the world, right? Right. In the U.S. has cities that are well-developed, so there's a legacy system.
0: A lot of built infrastructure already.
1: Right. People already live in the suburbs, so in cities in the developing world where there these are growing cities this is where these interventions could be very powerful because you we're talking about having the opportunity to build these cities with these concepts in mind and that will drive behaviors that will remain right so we talk mm-hmm. about lock in infrastructure we can talk about lock in behaviors right we have lock in behaviors in the US because of the way our cities have been built over centuries in some of these growing, emerging cities, which are, I mean, some of the, like, I think the top 10 largest cities by 2050 will be in developing countries. What we build in those cities now will lock in the type of behavior. And so I think in those cities, these strategies have a lot of potential. Again, because populations are going to be higher and incomes are going to grow, demand will probably be higher than it is now, but it will be lower than if they follow the path of the cities of the United States.
0: You know, I've I've been following the growth in the U.S. of sentiment around this kind of stuff, around density and walkability and sort of seeing it gain some political strength in the U.S. Not enough political strength, but at least it's a sort of viable political uh, force now. I'm so curious about developing cities where, as you say, these questions matter much more because you're you know instead of trying to tweak existing infrastructure, you're deciding what to build that could last for decades. Are these concepts of sort of density and robust transit and multimodal transportation and walkability and all this kind of thing, do they have any purchase in those areas where those cities are being built right now? Like are they catching on? or they are cities being built that way at all?
1: I would actually, if you haven't had a chance um, of contacting Karen Sito at uh, Yale University, who was the coordinating lead author for the urban chapter, she would be much more better equipped to deal with these. I think there are definitely places on the wor- in the world where walkability and density are growing in popularity. Mm-hmm. So if we talk about cities in Africa, I don't have an answer to that question, right, do You right. know that we're seeing that we where we are maybe we are, I don't know, so that I mean maybe that's a better question to pose to um Karen or someone in the in the urban chapter
0: and about the power system, which is another big one, another of the uh recurring obsessions here on volts. Is it fair to say that electrification is no longer a speculative type of thing? Is it fair to say that large-scale clean electrification is sort of necessary here? That there's no way around it? Is this, is this a clear winner at this point?
1: Yeah, so I think here we have to be careful and talk about two things. One is decarbonizing power generation. Right. And so how we generate electricity? And the other one is we use a lot of energy for heating and yes. for transportation that is not electrical energy. Right. Should we transition to electrical energy for those? Correct. And they, I think there is consensus that electrification of space heating, of transportation, of a lot of end of cooking really has the potential to reduce emissions from those energy services. They will only reduce emissions if we decarbonize the power sector, right. like their generation. And so we need to decarbonize the electricity system. And that decarbonization becomes even more, I mean, not more important because it's already very important, but <laughs> without this, that, the decarbonization, then electrification would not provide the benefits. But I think it is clear that electrification of end uses offers a large potential for mitigating emissions. It is much easier to decarbonize, not that it's easy, but it's easier to think about decarbonizing power plants than decarbonizing every natural gas furnace. Um, right. and so Replacing those furnaces with electricity is the way you can decarbonize. And I I, I think that like, the evidence is there for electrification of those end uses It's very important. It is definitely, we say in the transport chapter that electrification offers the largest potential for reducing emissions in land-based transportation.
0: Is there a consensus on how far electrification can go in transportation? Because, you know, there's, of course, there's planes out there, (laughs) big ships, you know, those are sort of in question whether they could be Electrified. And then there are sort of big trucks. There's a lot of sort of borderline cases that maybe, maybe not. So is there a a consensus currently on how much of the transportation sector can be electrified?
1: Passenger transport can definitely be electrified. And passenger transport currently accounts for 75% of emissions from land based transport, which accounts for like a very large share of transport. And it isn't just personal vehicles, right? It isn't just the automobile that like people usually think about it's also electrifying buses and rail in developing countries it's electrifying motorcycles like two and three wheelers which is already happening in developing countries so in developing countries a lot of transport happens through motorcycles and the evidence is that electrification of those is happening pretty rapidly for land-based heavy duty trucks, there is opportunities for electrification. It would be more for like trucks that don't travel very long distances. So let's talk about like garbage trucks and right. like, garbage collection trucks or like trucks that operate in mines um, or trucks that operate for shorter distances. I think the challenge for long distance hauling, I mean, I think for that's where electrification, There's a lot more uncertainty about the possibility of electrification. That's where the transport uh, chapter discusses the role of hydrogen and derivatives. Biofuels to a certain degree, although biofuels open up a lot of questions related to other impacts, but there are some countries where biofuels will likely remain an important component And then there's shipping and aviation, which are just totally different beasts. Hard to decarbonize. Electrification may play a role in like shorter... Short hops. Right. Short flights and ferries. Um, Aviation, a lot of it is moving people, right? So in some places where there is a rail infrastructure, shifting from flying to moving to high-speed rail can help reduce some... Countries like the U.S. that have rail infrastructure could potentially really improve the rail infrastructure for passenger transport, and and that would help. And if, if it becomes comfortable and economically viable and convenient, maybe that reduces some demand for aviation. But some aviation and some shipping will, I mean, it will remain, and we can't take a train to go to Europe like people in Africa is a huge continent, and the rail infrastructure is basically non-existent. Right. Um. So we need to find solutions for aviation, and those solutions are much less well developed. Um, hydrogen would be important for those sectors and it has to be electrolytic hydrogen, so right. hydrogen produced with electricity that is produced with low carbon sources. And for aviation, there's this idea of we need drop-in fuels converting that hydrogen to synthetic fuels um, that can be used in the current technologies. So, And those technologies are very early in the development stages. Synthetic fuel production from electrolytic hydrogen is very early in the development. The other thing we point out in the chapter is that in most of the scenarios, if not all of the scenarios that limit warming to 1.5 or 2 degrees, Emissions from transport do not go to zero, even by 2100.
0: Oh, interesting. So what's the remainder? Uh, what, what's the part you can't squeeze out?
1: I mean, the, the harder parts are shipping and aviation and some long haul transport.
0: So, so even by 2100, we can't imagine clean hydrogen-derived fuels taking care of that?
1: Okay, this is based on the models. And so the models have a lot of assumptions about what costs will look like and how the technology develops. I mean, it's not impossible that we say, okay, we really have to do something. We have to invest heavily on these, developing these technologies, really decrease the costs. And that will allow us to have those technologies. The models that are have studied these, do not incorporate those level of technology development and cost reductions right? because they're models, right? And the model will not choose things that are not available to choose. So in these models, those technologies are not available because they're not cheap enough. The development is delayed. So you wouldn't reduce emissions to zero, but you can still, the model suggests you could still, even if transport does not go to zero, you could still meet the 1.5 or 2 degree target. Now, the way it does that is through carbon dioxide removal. So the models have characterized carbon dioxide removal. Um, they have characterized, their cost characterization and performance characterization. And when, you, when they run the models, those technologies are deployed to address those the residual emissions that are very hard to reduce from some of those sectors.
0: So this gets back to my original question about how fast this stuff is evolving and changing. You could imagine the next IPCC report, which I guess will be five years from now, the next m- mitigation chapter, could find that these hydrogen-derived fuels have been you know, further developed, commercialized, maybe have gotten on a learning curve and are headed down. And that could theoretically change huge parts of of these models, right? I mean, you could get very, as you know, um, having convenient carbon-free liquid fuels would be...
1: It would be a game changer.
0: It would be a game changer in a number of areas. And it seems like we're right on the verge of having them. So do you think, you know, five years from now, when we come back to look at this again, that'll be an area of radical change?
1: I guess it depends on what we decide. (laughs) Now, I will point out also that these zero carbon synthetic fuels depend on carbon dioxide removal technologies.
0: Yes, true.
1: So the only way we can produce synthetic fuels that are zero carbon is if we can produce hydrogen from electricity, like low carbon electricity. For it to be zero, it would have to be through biomass, gasification and carbon capture. Using that captured Carbon dioxide with the hydrogen produce the synthetic hydrocarbons, right there. Right so, right. so even those technologies rely on CDR.
0: Right, and so is. Do you think it's fair to say on that on that subject? You know, this is another long-standing controversy argument. Some people have sort of said, well, the IPCC keeps saying these things are possible, but that's just because these models just keep tucking in more and more carbon dioxide removal toward the end, which is kind of like a get out of jail free card allows you to emit more on the front end. And, And, you know, some people have argued we shouldn't be assuming that large scale CDR will be possible. We should be sort of planning as though it weren't. So I don't know where you come down on that, but is it fair to say that any model that shows us hitting 1.5 is going to involve a lot of carbon dioxide removal?
1: Yes. I mean, Jim Ski's in the press conference, Jim Ski was the co-chair of Working Group 3. Mm -hmm. He said carbon dioxide removal is inevitable. Hmm. And there is a lot, I have gotten into some discussions over the last two weeks on Twitter, not weeks, the last days on Twitter about carbon dioxide removal. <laughs> um, and there is this concern that carbon dioxide removal is just an excuse to allow us to continue burning fossil fuels. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think that's the case. That's not what this report suggests. This report suggests that we have to reduce emissions now, and we might still need carbon dioxide removal. Right. So that it isn't just, they're not mutually exclusive. Sure. Like, we need to stop burning fossil fuels and we most likely still need carbon dioxide removal.
0: So we're gonna need, we're gonna need both al- almost no matter what,
1: right? And now the other thing is the report has a taxonomy of different mechanisms for carbon dioxide removal. Mm-hmm. All of that includes afforestation, right? So right. trees,
0: natural natural methods,
1: right? And I guess like ideally planning for no, C- no that CDR technologies will not be available. I mean that probably is a good idea. I just I think the model suggests that that's just not possible. I guess
0: <laughs> It's something that is just going to make something that looks almost impossible look even more <laughs> look even more impossible.
1: Unless there's like this technology that can produce this energy with no carbon, and All we right. haven't thought about it, and it suddenly appears and becomes cost competitive, and I, I I can't see any of those technologies. So personally, from what I know. With all the potential drawbacks of and the concerns about carbon dioxide removal, I think not investing on those technologies. It, I mean, we have to hedge the risk.
0: Right. Uh, one other thing about the power system before uh, we get on, um, there's a f- sort of uh, already famous uh, visual from the report, a graph from the report, kind of showing the relative potential contribution to decarbonization of. A long list of technologies, but um, among the power sector technologies, it's very clear that wind and solar are the big contributors. I'm, you know, two, three, four, five times more than their nearest competitors. So, you know, this is still an argument (laughs) in in climate world. There are still some people who say you know, renewables can't do it. It's going to be, have to be nuclear-based or we're never going to get there or on and on and on. Would you say at this point that it's pretty high confidence that any decarbonized world is going to have at its heart an electricity system primarily based on wind and solar? Is that fair to say at this point?
1: Okay, so you're talking about the cost and potential figure. Right. I think there is no doubt that wind and solar are... Going to be a massive contributor to mitigation. One thing to keep in mind is there are a lot of underlying technical, like operational issues surrounding the operations of a power system that that figure doesn't necessarily capture. So that these might be like if we figure out how to manage a power system with wind and solar, this is what you could expect to reduce. Mm-hmm. The energy chapter talks about these also, and it says electricity systems powered predominantly by renewables are becoming increasingly viable. In some countries and regions, um, electricity systems are already predominantly powered by renewables. It will be more challenging to supply the entire energy system with renewable energy. Mm. right? And so I think large shares of renewables in the power system are definitely possible. We probably have the tools. Those things require storage technologies mm-hmm. um, that have to be deployed. But the power sector is the easy one.
0: <laughs>
1: the energy sector isn't just the electricity sector, right? It is right. also the energy that is used in household, so, like in buildings, it's also the energy that it's used in transportation and the energy that is used in industry. And there are opportunities for electrifying a lot of that. And then there's opportunities for like, like wind and solar are going to be a big, like can provide a lot, large share of the electricity, but there's some end uses that it will be much harder. I guess you could do everything with hydrogen. Uh, and so you you everything is either electricity or hydrogen. And um, you produce the uh, hydrogen with renewables. And I, I think that, that a lot of that is going to be needed, but then you're really increasing the demand for electricity. And so the need for these other low carbon resources starts showing up. So the other thing about this cost figure is that the mitigation potential, like you have to, it's not like, it's not like the figure doesn't show that we can reduce all of our emissions with wind and solar energy, right?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Like even if we only use wind and solar energy, that isn't enough to meet all of the energy demand. So there is a lot, I mean, and I've done power system modelings and I've been involved in a lot of the work and in the controversy with certain work from a certain professor. (laughs) um, I often think like this whole discussion about nuclear and renewables, it feels like it's like you can only do one of them. And I think a lot of the energy models will say, we need everything at our disposal.
0: Sure. But I guess, I guess what I would say is, you know, the all renewables thing is a, is a I don't want to call it a straw man, because you're right, it is definitely out there. And there are lots of people <laughs> defending it. So it's a real thing. But I think it's fair to say that electrification, based on a system that is primarily powered by wind and solar, where these other sources, you know, nuclear, geothermal, storage, transmission, on and on, are supplements, are meant to balance out and make safe and reliable the system. But like the workhorse, the workhorses of the system are going to be wind and solar. That seems fair to say to me.
1: So another caveat is that wind and solar resources are also geographically different, right? And Mm -hmm. so I think that, statement is probably accurate for the United States. And we the, the report points out that a lot of places are operating very high renewable energy systems. They're mostly hydropower yeah. systems. I mean, I remember he- hearing at some point that the U.S. Great Plains Midwest region is like the so- Saudi Arabia of wind. Right. Uh, so not everywhere... Will have access to that same level of resources, um, and so I think because the electricity system isn't just an integrated system, you're not connecting the entire earth.
0: You could. <laughs> there are proposals. <laughs> I mean, well, those are very low confidence. Let's say.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah. So interconnection is going to be important, but I I see. I think like thinking about interconnecting. Africa and the Americans, probably not. And there's a big role for wind and solar in Africa, particularly solar. I think it is fair to say that renewable based power systems, wind and solar can get to very, we can get to very large levels and we'll probably need to get to a large levels. But some technology, some other technologies will be needed. And the contribution of those other technologies will vary regionally.
0: Right, 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 right. Okay. Well, I could talk about the power system forever, but I've kept you for too long and I have two sort of final questions. One is, um, you know, these are meant to be kind of long-term reports, forward-looking reports out to 2030 and 2050, even to 2100. But I'm curious, there's two things that have happened recently that have really roiled the energy world. One is, of course, COVID and the lockdown and the economic disruption And then the second is the Ukraine war and then sort of the subsequent imperiling of natural gas supply and the sort of the flurry of efforts to get off of Russian gas to accelerate the transition. I'm just wondering whether you think are either of those two going to have long-term effects on the sort of trajectories that you're looking at in these IPCC reports or are they ultimately going to look like sort of bumps that get kind of averaged out in the long term? Like how lasting of effects do you think those things are going to have?
1: So I think COVID, that's really uncertain because we have seen a rebound of emissions after the lockdowns were lifted. And so we saw Very quick reductions from emissions from transportation, for example, but those went up again last year. So I think the impact, in my view, the impact, the long-term impact of COVID is still pretty uncertain. Right. I hope that maybe companies are being more flexible and workers have an opportunity to stay home a couple of days and work from home a couple of days, and that could reduce emissions from the transportation sector. Uh, But I think that's really uncertain on russian gas i think it's a very large opportunity to do something that is in the benefit of climate mitigation right um and so because it's for climate mitigation it is not the the opportunity is not by finding other sources of natural gas it is to transition from heating that happens with natural gas and electricity generation that happens with natural gas to other low carbon sources. So actually it's like electrification of heating and then renewable uh, renewables or other low carbon sources for electricity.
0: You see lots of voices out there in this argument right now using the war almost to the opposite effect, saying this shows that we're transitioning too fast and this shows that we still need robust domestic you know, natural gas production and all that. So, I mean, I know you're not a fortune teller, so you can't tell us how that will balance out, but which of those arguments do you think will triumph in the end?
1: The pragmatic in me says that the fossil fuel vision will prevail. (laughs) The optimist in me hopes that that's not what happens. Because this is really affecting Europe, right? North America is not dealing with the only reason that North America is dealing with, like, it's, it's the fallout on gas prices is because it's a global market, right. not because the US is importing a lot of oil from Russia. Um, but in Europe, the optimist in me hopes that they will really push for electrification of end uses so that you can that you reduce demand for natural gas not that they just start building massive LNG terminals yes. so that they can import gas from the US. That would be my hope.
0: <laughs> We're all trying to keep our our hopes and our expectations distinct here. Okay, so final question. You know, these IPCC reports, you know, there's a lot of arguments around about I guess whether the process is is still useful. Obviously, you know, early on, especially when there was a lot more sort of uncertainty around the science and a lot more public, you know, the public didn't really understand it very well. There's definitely an argument for synthesizing things, right? For just bringing together everything we know periodically, just to settle those arguments in in, in a sense. But now you can sort of say that it's super clear. That climate change is happening and harming, <laughs> and harming us, and it's going to harm us worse. Like we've got a at this point just a mountain of reports to that effect, and at this point we know pretty well that we have a bunch of tools and policies and technologies that we could use to solve it if we wanted to. You know, we have a mountain of reports on that too. So, I guess I'm just wondering what's your read on whether the IPCC is still Relevant. Useful. In effect, just repeating that every five years. You know what I mean? Like at this point, we know, you know, at this point we know. Is is it useful to say again, yes, it's still bad. We still could solve it. Is it useful to do that? Or are there ways that the IPCC process could be revised or updated that you think would make it more useful? What's your sort of take on the overall IPCC process?
1: So I don't think it's necessarily the process, but the scope. Mm -hmm of what the IPCC produces. There were times writing this report where I was like, but we already know this.
0: <laughs> right. um,
1: there was a. I was in an event with Andy Refkin and a couple of the other lead authors. And one of the things we talk about is two pieces of information or like assessments that I think personally would be really important and useful. And maybe the IPCC could be the one that takes on doing that type of assessment. One is we keep talking about the costs of climate mitigation the impacts chapter talks about the the cost of the impacts of climate change right but climate mitigation also has a lot of other what we call co-benefits yes and there is a report that focuses on what quantifying the value of those co-benefits
0: oh interesting interesting i didn't know that that was left out because that's such a huge piece you know one of the things i I've tweeted this probably a hundred times now at this point, but just the reduction in particulate air pollution right. alone would pay for the whole damn thing.
1: And we mention it. It is discussed. There is also like a whole table on the intersection between climate mitigation and the sustainable development goals. Air quality shows up as is a co-benefit, but actually like what is the value of those co-benefits?
0: Right, and it does. Uh, yeah, this is actually a point. A point I wanted to underline uh, and, and forgot earlier, but this is a good time to do it. it. One of the things the the mitigation report emphasizes, which I think is a really important, is that it is not the case that decarbonizing will necessarily impoverish emerging countries. You know, this is a frequent sort of accusation from kind of opponents of the whole thing is, oh, you just want to deny these up-and-coming countries the same opportunities you had, and if we cut them off from fossil fuels, we'll leave them poor, et cetera, et cetera. The, The report says in no uncertain terms, radical decarbonization is commensurate with the UN Sustainable development goals.
1: Right. And you can and you of, do these together. And it, part of it is because of the avoided costs, right? Exactly. Those, but it also, I think just highlighting those co benefits much more prominently, yes. quantifying them would really also help with the message. And then the other assessment that I think, and I, we already talked about, is why isn't this happening? And <laughs> like in the real world, and what needs to happen in the real world for mitigation to take place. And I think those two could be special reports or a refocus of the working groups, but I don't think it's, I mean, out of the realm of what the IPCC could do.
0: Yeah. Are are you, I mean, were you involved in the previous one and do you plan to be involved in the next one? Or is this the kind of thing where you just do it once to check your box and then... And then get on with your own work.
1: This is the first time. And it's the first time, and I actually got promoted to coordinating lead author. Hmm. So on my first time at the IPCC, I was also involved in the approval of the summary for policymakers.
0: Oh, I heard that was a mess.
1: I mean, it was really interesting, but also super intense. Uh. Will I do it again? I, I mean... Through the process, there have been times where I have told my kids and, I'm, and friends, I'm like, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> this is done on a voluntary basis. And we still, it's not like I don't have responsibilities in my day job. And so it's a lot of time and it's a lot of, It's it's not an easy process. I think especially if there's this focus on these two things that I just mentioned to you. I would consider doing it again, mm-hmm. but like I can't say yes for sure, and I'm trying to avoid saying never.
0: <laughs> well, I really appreciate I, you know. I mean, this is another sort of aspect of these IPCC reports that I don't think it's enough press or is really appreciated enough by the public. But every body doing this is doing this on a volunteer basis, on their own time, unpaid. Like it's just an enormous pro-social thing that's happening. And I feel like it should be celebrated just on those grounds. Like it's remarkable that people are willing to work this hard and put this much time just to um, save the earth, I guess.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I think all most of us work in research settings where there is the flexibility to use some of our time Mm -hmm. on this type of work. But I, I mean, I still have to supervise PhD student. Mm -hmm. Um, and I still need to write proposals to fund those PhD students and I still need to teach so I mean there definitely is a limit.
0: Mm -hmm. Well I really appreciate your work on the report and I appreciate you uh, coming and taking the time here with us today.
1: Excellent thank you very much for having me I look forward to actually hearing the podcast.
0: Thank you for listening to the volts podcast. It is ad free powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much. and I'll see you next time.